Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. We've got an excellent interview for you today with the author Damien Lewis who is the uh, writer of numerous books on the Second World War and today he's come to talk about the SAS, Britain's um, development of special forces during the war and his new book SAS Great Escapes 2 which has uh, been born of some really really extraordinary research with the last surviving members of the SAS uh, the Second World War SAS uh, and their family members and some really really heartrending stories um, of uh, war of trauma uh, and of survival so without further ado um, it's my very great pleasure to introduce to you Damien Lewis uh, and to uh, join Damien in this uh, fascinating conversation thanks very much Okay, fabulous. Well, welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. I'm delighted to uh, introduce Damien Lewis, the author of uh, SAS Escapes. Is it SAS Great Escapes 2? That's right, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and there, I think there's a, a huge number of things to kind of um, talk about. We, we have, normally have about kind of 
40 minutes or so. So we'll try to pack as many of these kind of questions in. But obviously this talks about the, the, the SAS of most people's kind of popular imagination, except for the fact that there was a TV, show, a very daring kind of Peaky Blinders sort of TV show about them on earlier in the year. But yeah, most people... When they conceive of the SAS, think of a mod modern special force. They think oh, of well. counterterrorism and that kind of thing. But really, that's a, a small part of, of the story of the SAS. Mm -hmm. so perhaps, perhaps we could begin about talking about where they come from, yeah. the concept of special forces and where that arises from. Sure. So um, you really have to trace it back to June 1940, Britain's darkest hour, defeating Dunkirk. Um, and Churchill... Um, you know, admirably facing what looked like almost certain defeat in the face, staring defeat in the face, and with all his politicians and military advisors saying we had to roof these islands over and just concentrate on defence, he uh, basically refused and said, "No, we have to. We have to have offensive operations. We have to strike back, and if nothing else, we have to do so for the morale of the British people to show we have the will to fight and mm -hmm. to." demonstrate to our American friends who we hope will join us in the war eventually that the British bulldog is not down and out. So mm. the, the the means that he conceived of, of to do so, along with a very colourful, brilliant character in the war, Colonel Dudley Clark, who became the grand master of deception later in the war. But the two of them together conceived of the, the concept of the commandos. Well, actually, yeah. special duty volunteers or volunteers for... Um, hazardous service. So these were volunteers who would step forward to do the kind of small-scale raids that they envisaged and what would eventually become the commandos. Um, and, you know, at that stage, they had no equipment, no training, no one had ever done this before. And it was based largely loosely upon the idea of the Boer commandos from the Boer War who mm -hmm. were, you know, these, these South African farmers who rode their own horses, dressed in their farming clothes, carried their own weapons. And, you know, 25,000 Boer commandos caused 300,000 British soldiers in the British Army a very serious amount of problems in South Africa. Dudley Clark had seen that at first hand. He was brought up in South Africa. Churchill had reported from uh, the Boer War and been captured by the Boers and escaped. So both of them had this real intimate experience with what the Boer commandos were like. And that was the concept that they, right. they bring to, to, you know, to fruition in in Britain in, 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 in the beleaguered summer of 1940. Of course, there was immense resistance within the British military hierarchy in particular because the Boer commandos were irregular, you know, maverick guerrilla soldiers who didn't even wear uniforms, didn't particularly suit their officers. It was antithetical to most of what the British Army was about at the time. But, you know, with Churchill's backing, the special service volunteers became a, you know, several thousand strong force very quickly. And then, you know, you fast track from there into the summer of 1941, and the war is going extremely badly on all fronts. And in particular in North Africa, we are pretty much staring defeat in the in the face from uh, General Rommel's Africa Corps and the Italian forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and David Sterling, the founder of the SES, and one or two others conceived of a because the desert is so particular, it's so peculiar in terms of a of a um, theatre in which to fight. You know, huge, massive open spaces, long extended supply lines. It lent itself perfectly to those guerrilla-style operations. And so they conceived of a desert force, which could initially parachute in deep behind enemy lines and mm -hmm. 
and, and perpetrating mayhem and murder on their supply lines in particular, but also their outfields. And that was then the, the, the that's what led to the birth of the SAS, which grew out of this whole yeah. special volunteer cadre. And I'm guessing, as is so often the case in war, that learning these sorts of tactics and skills was a lot of trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the first the first ever mission um, by the SAS, which was Operation Squatter, which was in the uh, autumn of 1941, where they parachuted in five groups, five patrols parachuted in five aircraft, flew in five aircraft to parachute in and destroy five enemy airstrips to a rigid timescale, which was supposed to correlate to a Allied offensive. And lo and behold, the, the day they were flying in, a, a, you know, unbelievably a desert storm blew up and there was ferocious winds and torrential rain, the last thing they were expecting. But they went ahead anyway because it was to a rigid timescale they had to go in and it was an utter disaster. I mean, you know, of the 60-odd men who deployed, only just over 20 came back and the rest were all, you know, blown to the four corners of the desert or killed upon... Uh, you know, dropping into that terrain. And so they learned from that lesson. And what they learned was, you know, parachuting wasn't a particularly wise idea in terms of desert operations. But of course, the long range desert group, the mm-hmm. desert reconnaissance specialists were already there on the ground with their Chevrolet trucks, you know, traversing the desert, taking intelligence missions, carrying out observation uh, missions as well. Mm-hmm. And so they then became the taxi service via which the SAS were delivered to and taken back from their targets. So, yeah, it was very much a process of making up as they went along by trial and error. Yeah. And I, I suppose in those first years of the war, um, because of the defeat in France, um, all the sort of strategic assumptions that the British Army had and and the French, obviously, who were were meant to be our partners and they're defeated, um, those, you know, in the summer of 1940, all those strategic assumptions are, are torn to shreds. And so you sort of have to make it up as you go along um, to to some extent. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that part of the, you know, part of the development of, of not just the SAS, but of the kind of the, the, the commando idea was about showing the Americans that we were still in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how significant a factor do you think that that was? Um, I mean, do you think that, that in, in Churchill's thinking particularly? I, I think Churchill rarely made a decision Certainly in the early stages of the war, the first two years of the war, you could argue without a mind to America, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and you could argue that, you know, the actual um, material impact of the commandos in particular on, you know, German forces, the course of the war was negligible, pinprick rage, you could argue. But in terms of those two factors, the morale of the British people and convincing Roosevelt that we were in the fight, mm invaluable you cannot place a value upon it you know just to give you one example the first ever raid by the commandos was operation the name escapes me i'm sorry but it's uh what happened was in june 1942 you know dunkirk happens um you know churchill backs the formation of the commandos and he says i want the first raid back across the channel by the end of the month now just imagine the challenges involved you've got no trained people no one's ever done it before you've got no equipment no weaponry you know, but they did it. They got 90 guys back across the channel in RAF crash boats, um, which are not, you know, particularly great landing craft. They landed on beach. They raided a German position, seized some, seized some prisoners. Uh, you know, it, 
of infinitesimal importance in terms of the wider fortunes of the war. But at that moment, when yeah. they came back and they were successful and those headlines hit the British press, imagine the, the morale and propaganda value in Britain. And then, of course, those headlines were repeated across the across the Atlantic in America. The British bulldog finds its bark. That's a huge part of what it was about. Churchill yeah. was very penny. He wasn't just, you know, a stubborn and brave and 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 determined to do the right thing but he was also extremely canny and smart he yeah. knew what he had to do to try and maneuver america into the war but also to give roosevelt the excuse he needed because roosevelt wanted to join the you know britain and the allies don't forget he he was mustard keen he just needed a reason and excuse and churchill was providing that yeah and, le- and later on in the war i mean the, the the development of american special forces things like the us rangers and things like that are the uh, kind of a direct product of direct. all the lessons absolute direct pedigree so you know the first the first american special operations force which you could argue was the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of the CIA, it became the CIA after the war, was formed based 100% on the British SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which was the kind of sister wing to British Special Forces. Mm-hmm. Those the SOE was formed to do all the things you're not allowed to do in war, assassinations, bribery, corruption, money laundering, whatever it might be, because Churchill rightfully believed we had to fight the war as a total war, no holds barred on every front, because he knew hit the wood as well. And so, you know, when um, Wild, Wild Bill um, Donovan, mm-hmm. um, of what became the head of the OSS, wanted to form, wanted to work out how to form it, he came to the UK, went through UK training courses and was basically given the chapter and verse on how we had formed the SOE and our own special forces. So it was absolutely based on the same model. In fact, it wasn't just based on the same model, but they also had, you know, they had, they co-located individuals. So individuals from the SOE and British Special Forces were sent to the States to actually work alongside their counterparts and build that organisation up. And that, by the way, started happening before Roosevelt officially got America to join the war. Right, right. So this is high-stake stuff. So, there, there, I mean, there, and there's some some fascinating kind of inter-service connections across the Atlantic that I think go sort of slightly slightly unrecognised a lot of the time. I mean, you you often, the focus is often on sort of the slightly snooty things that American generals said about the British from time to time. But there's actually a huge amount of, of cooperation and, and knowledge sharing. And, uh, and of course, America, I mean, it, the, the the one thing I think that is, is, is kind of difficult to kind of really sort of imagine is that the the unpreparedness of, of, of American forces in uh, um, you know, in 1939, 1940, there was nothing to speak of, really. But nothing oh, at all. Yeah. And, and especially in this field, in the field of, of, of intelligence gathering, foreign intelligence gathering, special forces, they had nothing. So they had to base it upon the British model. Yeah. And, you know, it's all credit to, um, you know, British government and intelligence services in particular that they were willing to share really their most their innermost secrets and their innermost workings to enable the Americans to get up to speed, without which, you know, um, America's entry into the war would have been later, you could argue. And certainly when they entered the war, they would not have been so prepared. So this was crucial. And of course, then the Rangers, which were the American version of the commandos and all their special forces came to the UK, you know, mm-hmm. 1943, 
1942 to be put through exactly the same training courses that our guys were put through and then go off and do their own operations. So that relationship could not have been closer. So let's talk a little bit about um, the the writing of the book. Um, were you kind of in the, 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 the I, I read in um, in the fortunate position of uh, having sort of quite a um, sort of uh, contact with sort of veterans and families and, and, and that, that sort of thing. Obviously, you know, there, there aren't many left now, but talk us a little bit, talk us through a little bit of, of the process of research. How, how did you find these incredible stories? Yeah, sure. 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 I did, um, I did interview one of the last survivors of the SAS, uh, one SAS, a chap called Alec Borian. The reason I really want to make mention of him is that incredibly sadly, he died about three or four days ago. Oh, so I interviewed him about, I don't know, um, a few months ago. Um, and, you know, that was a real privilege, as you could imagine, and was very useful for writing of the book. And sadly, he's just passed away. Um, so capturing these stories from the people who were there, these are the last years in which we can do so. That's, yeah. that's a really, really important point to make. And then... Over and above that, you know, I've had incredible cooperation and help and support from the families of those who deployed. So that's opening their family archive, telling the stories of what their father told them, um, you know, all, all the things that without which these stories almost could not be told. But the really interesting thing is, this is where it gets kind of quite emotional, mm-hmm. is that in several of these stories told in SAS Grandscapes 2, um, you know, I, the the daughter of the man portrayed, for example, in the last story, Herbert Castello, Avro Castello, his daughter, you know, basically said to me in a very emotional, um, you know, communication, basically said, look, I've learned things about my father and his escape, which I never even knew. And, you know, it's been such a hugely emotional learning journey we've been on. Uh, of course, I learned a lot from her, for, you know, yeah. for example, her father used to have you know, every full moon he would have a nightmare. He'd wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares because they would deploy on operations in the full on the full moon. It was called the moon window when you could see enough to actually parachute into enemy territory. But she told me, you know, every every full moon he would wake up in the middle of the night, bathed in sweat and screaming and having nightmares. And she would, as a young girl, would go into his room and mop his brow. And he never spoke about the war. So many of these men didn't. No. But he would he would just mention a few things when she caught him in that moment. So for example, one time she said, what's that scar on your side? He said, that's a, that's a bullet wound. That's where the German shot me. And then she, he had all these marks on his chest. She asked what those were. He said, that's where the Germans, when they captured me, tortured me with electrodes. So, you know, really, really intimate, um, you know, sharing of really, really intimate emotional material like that. And then her reaction to some of the things she didn't even know about her father, which I had you know, written about and revealed in in his great escape story. And that experience was replicated through several of the tales told in the book. And I think that's really, that's why, that's the joy of writing these stories, partly. Yeah. Is you, you know, if you've done your job properly, it, it becomes an emotional journey and you it, it draws you very close to the families of those you portrayed. Well, I mean, I, I guess firstly, if if you've been um, someone that served on on the, the most classified of, of missions, and it's you know, I remember John Le Carre talking about how you know, even though he was totally disenchanted with intelligence and very jaded, he says there are certain things you never talk about because that's you know that was your duty and your pledge. And also, 
all that, you know, again, trauma, huge amount of, of terrifying and, and uh, stuff and, and also, you know, witnessing all sorts of things. Yeah. So, uh, and the uh, the inability to pass it on to your families and um, I, I guess the ability of family members then to be able to tell you the story has a, a kind of a, a very powerful effect and probably something very good for them too to, to be able to kind of share that eventually. And um, you're right in that the, 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 there is this, this generation of people who have lived, the, the, lived um, these these kind of incredible um, in, 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 these in, incredible experiences, and that are are now kind of all, all dying out. So it's really great that you've you've managed to to capture that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Perhaps we could talk about a, a couple of the escapes. What stood out for you as as the kind of the the, the most kind of I suppose unlikely survival story, if you will? Most unlikely, probably. Um, well, probably two actually. Well, um, I mean, actually, all of them. And that's a terrible answer, but they're also unbelievably extraordinary. That that I think in every one there comes a moment where you just don't believe they're going to make it through or, or an individual's going to make it through, you know, just the first story, um, you know, Bill Fraser, Lieutenant Bill Fraser, who was this archetypal figure in the, in the SAS all through the war, you know, a real standout figure. If there was a one single SAS raider who kind of rivaled um, Colonel Paddy Main, Blair Paddy Main, who was, you know, the, the raider without compare who went on to command the SS for the war, it would be Lieutenant Bill Fraser. And they, of course, were very close for much of the war. Um, but Bill Fraser on his second ever mission, you know, his first mission is wildly successful, um, destroys 37 enemy warplanes on the ground. And <clears throat> when he comes out in his report, he laments the fact that they left two behind. <laughs> that's his, that's the main, the main focus of his report, not, gee, we got 37. It's like, oh, yes, well, we left two behind. That's annoying. Um Brilliantly underspoken, Scott. And um, but on the second mission, they 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 get the, the long range desert group patrol that's supposed to pick them up gets shot up by German aircraft 
and only one vehicle survives and they're limping home. And obviously they can't pick up Fraser and his party. And so they then have several hundred miles to cross of enemy, enemy territory in the middle of the Sahara Desert with no water and no food, hunted by the enemy all the way on foot. Now, obviously, you don't stand a chance, you would imagine, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. And yet, and you know, the means by which they do so um, are just, yeah, if you wrote that as a fiction, if you wrote that story as a thriller, people wouldn't believe it. And that's the no. great thing about these tales, is that they are, they are truth is strange in the fiction, and these are all, they, these all have that element to them. And it's testimony to the, absolutely unyielding spirit of these individuals who were drawn to these special forces units. Yeah. They, they had this absolute determination to, to get back to their unit and carry on the good fight. And I think that's really important to emphasize, you know, whenever you speak to people who, as I have done, some of the guys who actually got away, you might imagine, for example, you know, mm-hmm. their, their driving desire to escape would be to defeat the Nazis or to fight for queen and country. Actually, when you ask them what really drove them to escape and get back to their unit, it was because they felt guilty about not being there alongside their brother warriors fighting shoulder to shoulder with them. That's a really important point. It's yeah. the core that the SAS forged and other units like it was so strong and so powerful and the brotherhood so, so overarching and so binding that those who were in a POW camp, reasonably safe and secure, actually. I mean, it weren't great conditions, but, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you weren't about to die at every moment. They felt guilty and it was the guilt and the need to get back to fight alongside their brothers that drove them to escape and escape and escape again, even knowing if they were caught, what would happen to them? Yeah. So that's some quite extraordinary sort of mindsets to be in. And I just wonder, when you look at um, members of the SAS, is that are there sort of um, unifying features between them that kind of uh, sort of give, give us a clue about the sorts of people that volunteered for this these, these kinds of suicide missions very often? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, suicide missions is not, you know, that's not an over-exaggeration. The Second World War in particular, an awful lot of them were, and sometimes they refer to them in that way. Um, there are unifying features. I mean, it, it's kind of almost counterintuitive, but so I'm trying, trying to give you an example that, that, that will make it easy to understand. So, for example, if, if I were an officer and you were one of my men and we were going to spend you know the next three months on a desert raiding operation, I, I can't exactly order you to, to 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 follow my orders and because it's such an extreme thing to do mm. you know the only way you could actually command and lead people in that situation was by inspiration and by example by making people feel they were part of something absolutely special and unique and that the cause well gelled everybody and welded everyone together united all for one one for all mm. so there's this concept of um, transformational leadership, which is well recognised today. It wasn't really recognised in in World War Two, but this is kind of where it was, uh, where it started. And and the idea is that you don't lead by dint of rank, you don't lead by ordering people, you lead by example and by inspiring them. And that is the only way you can get them to go into these 
absolutely suicidal situations where the chances of getting out are almost zero. You can only do that in that way. You can't order soldiers. It doesn't work. I mean, you know, you're 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 away for months on end in the desert in small bands of men. They've got every every opportunity they want to do to bump you off as their officer and just mm. return home. You can only command in that way. And I think to do that, uh, and the way that somebody like, you know, Colonel Blair Paddy Main or, or other standout SAS commanders did in the war, you have to have certain aspects to your character. Of course, you have to be a brilliant warrior. You have to be, you know, a fantastic tactician. But more than anything else, you have to have imagination and empathy. Yeah. You have to have imagination to be able to think, to conceive of missions which are so off the scale of the enemy's radar, they're never going to imagine you would attack in that way. That's the first yeah. thing. Really, you've got to be able to think <laughs> unthinkable. And the second thing is you need empathy because you've got to be able to build a relationship with the men under your command so they would follow you into the jaws of hell itself and back again and and, and still think that, you know, that, that they had a chance of surviving. And that's what, if you read the accounts of, of all the originals who served alongside um, Paddy Main, who's, a, you know, a great example of this they all say for whatever reason when we were under his command no matter what the stakes we were up against no matter how terrible things looked we always believed he had the ability to bring us back again alive does david sterling kind of rack up in in the same line because there there are kind of mixed sort of shall we say revisionist views of david sterling have kind of emerged in the last Ten or twenty years or so. I mean, what's your sense of him? Sterling was another utterly exceptional character, but different. So, the best way to sum up, sum it up, you know, in terms of Sterling and Maine, for example, um, David Lloyd Owen, who was one of the LRDG officers, he said they were the perfect combination and terrifying in their effect. That Sterling and Maine. The reason being, Sterling's brilliance was his flights as fancy as imagination he conceived of the unit in the first place he's the guy who who had the intellect and the, the the powers of imagination to think such a unit might be possible and what it might do mm-hmm. and then he also had the the charm and the context to to operate on high at the higher level to protect the SAS because it had so many detractors and so many enemies yeah and then they, was the man who at the coalface went out and made the raids happen and made the uh, you know the hundred aircraft get destroyed uh, you know in, in in a few weeks and who actually drove the men forward on the front line and that's why they were this brilliant combination in a sense you could not in the early days you could not have had one without the other they were no. they were essential to the two of them the kind of Jagger and Richards of special forces you know yeah, <laughs> uh, um, I guess. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about these, these these sort of institutional sort of pressures where it's, um, you know, established um, uh, military and, you know, senior military people who think, you know, I, I don't understand what this is. I don't understand mm-hmm. why we're doing it. Um, and I would probably like it to go away or defund yes. it or shut it down. And when did the tide turn for people like Sterling? I mean, by the end of the war, special forces are an established fact. When when did they win the argument? Do you think they never won, they never won the argument during World War Two? Okay. They were always unpopular and always um, 
on sufferance. Let's put it that way. The thing about the thing about them was they were very successful in what they did. So their detractors, you know, felt threatened by them more than anything else because success breeds envy, and it it makes people in 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 places positions of higher command who don't understand this new way of fighting war feel insecure. That was the big problem. But you have got to remember that you know October nineteen forty five, the SAS is disbanded. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as Alec Borry, the, the 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 veteran I mentioned, who sadly just passed away, said to me a few weeks back, he said, "Look, you know, they couldn't wait to get rid of us." Because we did our own thing in the way we knew how to do it. And we didn't really take much notice from our detractors from on high. So, you know, the desire to get rid of the SAS was was uh, there throughout the war and it never went away. And it was that they were they were disbanded in, in October 45. They were then reformed, you know, several years later for the Malaya emergency. Mm-hmm. Really, you'd have to kind of look look more recently i would guess kind of the iranian embassy siege time yeah when they came out of the shadows into the public conscious and became this this kind of military brand that mm-hmm. is being conceivable now um and you know after something like the iranian embassy siege to have got rid of them but it took a long time and it, it yeah. took a change of mindsets and a and a realization of the appreciation of what special forces soldiering can bring to the to the to the military and a nation in in its entirety, and that certainly didn't happen during the war. I mean, bear in mind during the war they got very very little publicity, almost no. nothing. No, and is that partly to do with uh, official secrecy or uh, power struggles, or is it just, you know British wartime journalism didn't know how to tell that story? It's it's more it's more the fact that very very few you know British or American journalists had access to what they were doing. I mean, how could you have access to what they were doing? Then she wanted to parachute in at like D Day, and then she wanted to parachute in and join a bunch of twelve guys parachuting deep behind the lines and risk a suicide operation. You know, it's very hard to report on what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, in in August forty four, Paddy Mains in Paris. You know, the battle. The post D Day battles are pretty much won. They've been very successful, and he he meets up with a Reader's Digest journalist. Actually, it's the Reader's Digest that is one of the first um, publications that actually tells the story of the SAS and 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 calls them that by name. And and, and he wanted that to happen because canny individual that he was, he realised that official recognition for those men taking those unbelievable risks was actually important to them. Mm-hmm. Because if you just saw other units getting all the credit all the time, imagine what that did to your morale. Yeah. It was very, very hard for um, for journalists to get access to those kind of stories. And just, I guess, as a final question, I mean, David Sterling's post-war life is quite well publicised, but what some of the other guys, what did they do when they were demobbed? Well, that's a great uh, question. I mean, you know... Getting demobbed um, for for these guys in particular was was actually traumatic in the extreme. So I've just finished writing my second book on um, it's kind of you know Blair Paddy Main and his band of warriors. So the first was SAS Brothers in Arms, and this one's called SAS Forged in Hell. It comes out in October, and I had the manuscript. The first manuscript and this one read by a PTSD specialist called Ross Townsend, who's fantastic. Right. And she said, she said to me, look, she said, any one of these missions is enough to give you enough trauma to have PTSD. Five years of back-to-back behind Emmy Lines missions, it's inconceivable you wouldn't have it. But she said, most importantly of all, you can keep the trauma at bay 
when you're with your band of brothers because you've got a bigger you've got a greater mission to strive for and that greater mission to strive for means you can kind of bury it you can mm. bury it with camaraderie you can bury it bury it with drinking the mesh you can bury it with the next mission but she said you take away that bigger purpose you take away the identity that melds them all together it, it, it surfaces very quickly and she says the worst way you could have done that was what they did in october 45 and then literally she had a parade and said right you're all either going to be returned to your units or sent back to civvy street we're being disbanded and that was it and so many of these individuals i'm very sad to say like bill fraser the guy i mentioned in the first escape story you know he led a life of alcoholism he was on the streets at times and died an early death as did paddy main so a lot of these individuals mm. uh, huge number of these individuals were really really traumatized and suffered terribly uh, there was a, yeah. i did some um some some work at uh, RAF Duxford uh, many years ago now but got to speak to um former Lancaster crews a, a couple of surviving guys and again as you put it the level of suicides mm-hmm. between you know 1945 and about 1948 Mm-hmm. Um, people dying very young of things like tuberculosis because uh, the the messes they were in were and and the planes were health health hazards, um, alcoholism, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you imagine what flying flying as a tail end Charlie in in one mm-hmm. of those things was like. But it, again, it's to, to do with how, how they were disbanded and, you know, mm-hmm. following things like um, the, the Dresden raid, suddenly they're in embarrassment and we don't want to talk about <laughs> bomber command. Um, and they're, yes, just kicked out, thrown out on their ear, really. It's a disgraceful way to treat people. Um, so I, I, I guess um, there is a, there's a whole, a whole unwritten history of, of war mm-hmm. trauma. Uh, but probably for someone else to write, I think, not me. Um, but um, it, it's it really is instructive to hear these stories and and to to just to appreciate what it must have been like for people to yeah. get through that experience. Okay, so we need to um, finish up in in just a moment. But uh, the book is available now. Is that right? Um, yeah, so it's Thursday. So um, yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, fab. So I'll put a as soon as it's available, I'll put a link in the podcast to the book. Um, a, a, available in all 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 good um, retailers. Try not to buy from Amazon if you can, folks, and support your local bookshop. Um, Damien, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. When the next book comes out, would you be happy to pop back and have another chat with us? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My pleasure, obviously. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, yeah. Fab. Well, I'll I'll let you know when uh, when when the podcast goes live. And thanks you, you so much for for coming on. Yeah, sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.